Hey, what's up, CK? CK is tuning in on Twitter Spaces. All right, so everybody, welcome to another live stream. My name is Ansel Lindner. This is Bitcoin and Markets, simulcasting on Telegram and Twitter Spaces. Join the Telegram t.me for slash Bitcoin and Markets to get all the links and charts that I talk about here. So what is going on today? Well, just a quick update on yesterday's live stream. Sorry for the guys in Telegram. I forgot to unmute myself, man. It was human error on the on the Telegram side, but thank God Twitter Spaces recorded it. So I was able to grab that audio and put that out on the podcast stream. But that has been easily remedied today. And what what are we going to get into today? Well, uh, I am I did have to delay the newsletter for one day. I didn't have time to get to it yesterday, but I will. I'm putting it out today, so I'm going to go over a few of those things that I'm writing about on the newsletter. If you're not signed up, go to bitcoinandmarkets.com and just sign up for the free tier. That's the news, uh, the email tier, pretty much, and you'll get the newsletter and all of the content when it comes out. You'll get an uh, email notification for that. But anyway, I'm going to go through that. We have some OPEC stuff, an OPEC story I wanted to read through, some G20 drama, and some developments on the peace front in Ukraine. So that's important. We're going to talk a little bit about that. And what else did I have? Of course, the Bitcoin chart and some other macro charts. So we will dive into all of that. Now, also, guys, if you're new to my content, I have a holistic view of this of the world basically, but uh, really of the monetary system and macro and life in general, it's all connected. And so the macro scene to me is following the macro scene and following all the news and stuff that is going to inform you of what's going to happen to the monetary system, what's going to happen in markets, and then you can invest accordingly. So Bitcoin is the most perfect money we've ever had, but the move towards Bitcoin is going to be the result of just the macro soup, if you will, uh, what's happening out there in geopolitics and macro. So I think it's very important to, to follow this stuff. And that's what I do on a daily basis. All right. So let's, what should we start with? Let's start with some charts. So the Bitcoin chart, we are back over 17,000, but as I am writing the newsletter today and I'm putting a bunch of charts together for those readers, I mean, there is a ton of resistance that is really um, coalescing around 19,000. So that is going to act as a magnet for price. It should, at least. Price should go north and be drawn into all of those bids and sells and, or, you know, asks that are up there at 19,000, that it prices seeking liquidity. And so it will go up to that previous support that is now turned resistance. And we'll see what happens there. That is my near term outlook is the price will be sucked up to 19,000 and where it goes from there. It depends. Okay. If you look at the dollar, the dollar chart, well, let me post the Bitcoin chart here. Let me put a green line where all of this 
stuff is kind of consolidating. I'm going to post that on Telegram. And now let's go to the dollar. Had a pretty big move down earlier in this trading session for DXY down to 105. And now it's bounced back up to 106. Um, We'll see. I don't think there is an imminent sell-off. I saw Joe Carlosari posting a chart saying, oh, we're approaching, I don't know if it was a 200-day moving average. And if it breaks down through this, uh, that's really, really bad. It's going much lower. Well, look how far it's come in just the last few days. I mean, if it if it doesn't bounce on the 200-day, which it already seems to have bounced on the 200-day, but let's say it doesn't, and it falls back through there, you know, things don't happen in a straight line immediately. So if the dollar is going lower, it's probably going to have a, a rally here and then go lower. And that is a bear case for me because I don't think the dollar is going lower. I think it's entered a new range. I think we're setting the bottom of that range right now. So the bottom of that range around 105 would be okay. That would make sense. The 2016 high for the dollar was 103. So it would also make sense to go down to 103 and have that be the new bottom of this new range. Um, But the dollar is weakening. Now, if we put that into context of Bitcoin, Bitcoin is weakening as well. This doesn't make any sense, right? The the whole thing about the strong dollar. So people, you know, the let me rewind here. The the idea of Bitcoin as an inflation hedge was the dominant narrative. And then you have um the dollar strengthening and Bitcoin weakening. Now you have the dollar weakening and Bitcoin weakening. None of these narratives are making any sense. What's going on here? Well, what's going on is we are just in another pause point, another type of reflationary pause that's going to last for a couple years. And Bitcoin does the best during these times. So the acute dollar shortage is over. We can see this in many many different aspects. Now, one thing that I have been, that has been troubling me and my kind of uh, forecasting is, man, it does look like there is a hard recession coming. But perhaps I, I go back to this, okay? Perhaps the market, because we haven't seen these levels of CPI increase in 40 years, right? So perhaps the market is reading a nominal GDP decline, GDP nominally was 8 9% when inflation was 8 9% or CPI was 8 9%. And now if nominal GDP falls to zero, that is a huge, that's going to feel like a huge crash. And perhaps that is what some of these statistics, these markets are sussing out that there's going to be a huge drop in nominal GDP, not real GDP, because CPI is also falling. We had some other numbers out. Um, Let me pull this up. I just posted this in the Telegram group, and this is a thread from Andreas Steno. I'm just super, super impressed with 
his content. He has kind of burst onto the scene this year. And I mean, his content is simple and clear. And I really like the way he's the, his con- I like his content better than his counterpart, uh, Macro Alf. Um, but Macro Alf stuff also burst onto the scene this year. And he is doing really great work. So I recommend following both of these guys. On, it's at Andreas Steno and at Macro Alf. If you guys aren't, you probably are. But um, here we go with his little tweet thread. He said, another mild inflation number from the U.S., this time the producer price index. Inflation is heading lower, but watch out, a thread. PPI now clearly hints of lower CPI readings around 6 to 7% within a couple months from now. Good news. And it adds to a series of downward pointing indicators for inflation. Now, I don't like, obviously, that he's using the term inflation here. This should be prices. Prices go up and down for a lot of reasons. <laughs> and inflation is only is a very specific reason it's a destructive reason but prices going up for other reasons like supply and demand are good we should want prices to go up if it is signaling information in the economy rising prices is not a bad thing It is only a bad thing when it is due to monetary debasement, which it is not in this case, right? So I don't like him using the term inflation and he knows my arguments here, but he's using the colloquial term so that he can reach a broader audience, right? So anyway, good news. And it adds to a series of downward pointing indicators for inflation. Freight rates, for example, hit hint of sharp goods disinflation in coming months. Now, disinflation, remember, is a slowdown in the rate of increase. Why would he say disinflation here? They're falling off a cliff. Freight rates are coming down dramatically. I haven't looked at them in the last couple of weeks, but two, three weeks ago, they were already down to pre, like early pandemic levels. So this isn't disinflation. This is straight up deflation. Anyway, supply chains are softening up, which ought to bring prices of goods down ultimately. So on the flip side of rising prices isn't always a bad thing. It's most of the time just a neutral thing. Like it conveys information in the market. We should want prices to be able to fluctuate. We don't want price controls. Okay, but on the flip side of High prices are can be good or bad. Price declines can be good or bad, right? So prices coming down shouldn't be like, yeehaw, woohoo. The economy is going to rip roar. Inflation is under control. Like that, that's not what prices coming down means. Prices coming down could mean that demand has been crushed. And when demand is crushed, That's not a good thing. Anyway, um, also food prices are bound for a correction lower in a CPI index due to one, lower energy prices and two, lower transportation costs. All right, fine, but diesel is really high. So that's going to have different effects. But we 
need to look at what it means for the Fed and for markets as well. Using historical parallels, the market will likely try and chase equities higher on lower CPI prints in search of a Fed pivot on rates and QT. Because remember, they're not just raising rates, they're also decreasing their balance sheet, their quantitative tightening. What happened in 1974 as well, and then he shows this chart. It's exactly what he said. The problem is just that an early pivot risks fueling inflation pressures. Why? Why is that the case? That's not the case. As it did in the 1970s when the Fed pivoted alongside alongside weakening CPI momentum. But that there is no mechanical way that a pivot affects the market. The pivot is a psychological thing. Okay, if he says a pivot, what, what, you know, explain the psychological mechanism for why a pivot would increase money printing. Anyways, um, Powell has been pretty firm that he does not want to repeat the mistakes of the 1970s. Why a pivot on both rates and the balance sheet seems a bit far-fetched to hope for already. At best, we get a slowdown in the pace of hikes. All right. Um, I won't read through the the next few, but uh, it's a good thread, so you guys should go read to the end. I'll just also point out here uh, Powell's MO of pivoting. So remember, he pivoted at the end of 2018 into 2019, and his pivot didn't include turning off QT immediately. That went another six months. He paused rate hikes in January of 2019, but QT continued. Then in July is when he actually cut rates. And then we had the repo rumble in September when we immediately switched from QT back to QE. So it was a slow motion pivot over nine months. I think that I I have been using 2019 as an example of something to follow to guide ourselves here. And if we're looking at a pivot, that's what I would expect. I would expect them to slow the increase of rates, pause rates, then lower rates, then stop QT. It's exactly what Powell did last time. Anyways, um, okay. Spent too much time on that, actually. Let's, what was I going to read? The OPEC thing first. So this goes into CPI stuff because... One of my big things about CPI is that it is very closely correlated to oil. We had a oil scare, supply shock, and prices have come down. Yet we still see people calling for $300 a barrel oil. Oh, China is going to open back up. Oh, there's so much demand in the world. And demand is growing at 2 million barrels a year or 3 million barrels Per day a year yet we still have 2019 as the peak in oil demand and we're still below that three years you know on and we're going into a global recession do you think oil demand is going to increase in this type of environment anyway opec has already you know they cut their rates or they cut their quotas right that was a big news a couple months ago 
and I talked about it here on the show. They cut their quotas. And everyone's like, oh my God, they're gonna the price of oil is gonna go to three hundred dollars a barrel. <laughs> well, I said back then that's not gonna happen because they cut their quotas. They were already producing like three or four million barrels per day below their quota. And then they just cut their quota to make it a little bit more in line with what they were actually producing. I think there was one country, and that was Saudi Arabia, that on net decreased their production. Every other OPEC country had way more room in their quota than the cut. So they could actually increase their production still. Then stuff has been trickling out with OPEC revising their demand forecast down. And here's another one. Um, headline here from Zero Hedge, OPEC cuts oil demand growth estimates yet again. Significant global economic uncertainties in the coming months made OPEC cut on Friday, uh, cut on Monday. It's estimate of global oil demand growth for this year and next in the fifth reduction of consumption forecast since April. The fifth reduction of consumption forecast since April. Demand for oil is falling way faster than the supply has jumped back. And also the other part of this argument is technology keeps increasing. Efficiency gains keep happening. You can do a little bit more, marginally more work with less energy. So like if you have entered the global economy gets 1% more efficient a year, that reduces the demand for oil or energy, quote unquote energy, by 1%, you know, all else equal. So as we have, we can more cheaply take oil out of the ground, we can more efficiently use that energy, prices will go down. I don't I, I don't get it. It's their fifth reduction in consumption forecast since April, people. OPEC revised down each of its 2022 and 2023 oil demand growth forecasts by 100,000 barrels per day from last month's estimates due to China's still strict COVID policies and economic challenges in Europe, the organization said in its monthly oil market, blah, blah, blah. Quote, the significant uncertainty regarding the global economy accompanied by fears of a global recession contributes to the downside risk, downside risk for lowering global oil demand growth. So the risk is to the downside here. It's not even like, you know, they're, they're lowering their oil demand forecast, but the risk is still to the downside. In addition, China's strict adherence to its zero COVID 19 policy adds to this uncertainty, making the country's recovery path even more unpredictable. Well, it's predictable enough for you, OPEC, to cut your forecast. Okay, in October, a week after announcing a 2 million barrel per day headline cut to its collective oil production target or quota, OPEC slashed its global oil demand growth estimates for both 2022 and 2023. Those estimates are now further revised down by 100 barrels per day each. OPEC now sees global oil demand growth at 2.5 million barrels per day in 2022 after slashing the fourth quarter demand projections by nearly 400,000 barrels per day. Global oil demand is projected to average 99.6 million barrels per day this year. So 99.6 million barrels per day this year. Uh, 2019, I'm 
pretty sure I'm remembering this correctly, was 102 million barrels per day. 2019, 102 million barrels per day. And now the average for this year, three years later, is under 100 million barrels per day. With developed economies in the Americas seeing the highest rise in demand led by the U.S. on the back of recovering gasoline and oil demand, the cartel said. Light distillates are also projected to support demand growth this year, OPEC added. So I will say here that they are saying that the highest rise in demand was from the U.S. And part of my thesis here is that the U.S. will do least bad. They will do least bad in this world. They'll do least, you know, the coming recession, the deglobalized wave. The U.S. will do least bad. And we're seeing that in a very base number here. And that is the demand for oil. All right. So that's all I have for this one. Um, let's see. What else do we have now? I was going to read something about the G20. This is from the G20. This is going on in Bali right now. Uh, my guy, Tone Vase, was just over in Bali. <laughs> he just had his Bali conference. And now the G20 is following him up. There's a few things from this article that I wanted to read through. This is from Reuters um, about the G20 and what's going on in this. I think it's only a two-day conference. But there's some important nuggets here for macro and geopolitics and hence bitcoin so let's uh the headline is wrangling over ukraine war dominates summit of g20 major economies all right a western-led push to condemn russia's invasion of ukraine dominated tuesday's group of 20 summit on the indonesian island of bali where leaders of major economies grappled with a dizzying array of issues from hunger to nuclear threats so all the central planners are getting together and boy they are just overwhelmed by the dizzying array of issues that they need to centrally plan oh man it's just so tough president vladimir putin's february 24th invasion of neighboring ukraine was uh pummeled has sorry has pummeled the global economy and revived Cold War-era geopolitical divisions just as the world was emerging from the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Okay, this is obviously biased. So (laughs) his war did not pummel any global economy. It's the sanctions that pummeled the global economy. It's the West that has put the geopolitical divisions. They pushed Ukraine into NATO. They armed Ukraine. They trained Ukraine. They gave them weapons to bomb the Donbass. And they were building up forces to faint. It looked at the time like they were about to invade Russia proper. So, no, they instigated it. It wasn't Vladimir Putin. The West instigated this. And people, many, many people realize this. This is the secret that's whispered. And we have Reuters pushing this this crazy stuff and it's being pushed at the G20. Well, the G20 won't fall for it. They won't fall for it. So maybe the G7 would, but I don't think the G20 would. As 
at other recent international forums, the United States and its allies were pursuing a statement from the two-day G20 summit to condemn Moscow's military actions. How about NATO's military actions? But Russia said politicalization, politicization, whatever, of the summit was unfair. Quote, yes, there is a war going on in Ukraine, a hybrid war that the West has unleashed and been preparing for years, said Lavrov, repeating Putin's line, okay? A 16-page draft declaration seen by Reuters, which diplomats said was yet to be adopted by leaders, acknowledged the rift, quote, most members strongly condemn the war in Ukraine and stressed it is caused it is causing immense human suffering and exacerbating in existing fragilities in the global economy. No, the sanctions are exacerbating existing fragilities. There were other views and different assessments of the situations and sanctions. Oh, great. The summit is the first G20 leaders gathering since Russia sent its forces into Ukraine. The 20 nations account for more than 80% of the gross domestic product, 75% of international trade, and 60% of its population. Come on. All right. We have now, sorry, we have no other option. Collaboration is needed to save the world, said Indonesian President Jocko Widodo. Okay, if collaboration is needed to save the world in an increasingly fractured world where deglobalization is dominant, trust is breaking down, international institutions are losing their sway, but they need collaboration to save the world? Not going to happen. You hear these same calls about CBDCs. We need international work. We need international coordination, international management, international this, international that. We need buy-in from the world to do this and that. Well, if that's what you need, it's not going to happen. Gone is 1995 when the U.S. could say, XYZ and XYZ happens in the international order. That's Those days are gone. There is not going to be any collaboration, at least globally. We're going to see a continued fracture of this. We've, just, we've seen, what, like five, six, seven new countries are applying to be part of BRICS? That could be part of a new multipolar world. So if they need international collaboration to save the world, quote unquote, it's not going to happen. Might as well just throw it out. That's how that's how we know this is BS. That what they're they're trying to sell us here. Because of course the world's going to be fine. It's just your globalist marxist stuff is not going to work. That's all. G20 must be the catalyst for inclusive economic recovery. What does that even mean? We should not divide the world into parts. We must not allow the world to fall into another cold war. All right, hot war is better, apparently. A nuclear war is better than another cold war. But there isn't going to be another cold war that's like between the U.S. and Russia or even the U.S. and China. I think we could have a cold war as in there's multipoles, multipolar world, where there's not any large scale, large scale war. 
that's possible. There'll be lots of proxy wars. There'll be lots of border wars, tons, but there won't be any world wars. So uh, if that's what a cold war is, then okay, we probably are going back into something like that. But okay, so this is what they need. This is what they're saving the world from. They, from non-inclusiveness and dividing the world into parts. I, I don't see why that's bad. I don't see what's wrong with this. Um, obviously you're not being inclusive of all other opinions. Like if somebody has a legitimate opinion about the war in Ukraine that does not fit your prescribed propaganda, you're not inclusive of that. They don't like diversity. They can't stand diversity. Global Marxists cannot stand diversity. Everybody must think the same. They must behave the same. They must talk, speak the same. Inclusive to them means getting everybody into this certain mold. That's what inclusive means. It's crazy. Okay, continuing. The main points coming up here. The draft summit document also said G20 central banks would collabor- uh, collaborate. That, that doesn't follow. Would collaborate monetary tightening with an eye on the global inflation problem. While fiscal stimulus should be temporary and targeted to help, uh, to help the vulnerable while not hiking prices. I mean, this is just a bunch of central planner jargon here. Um, on debt, it voiced concern about the deteriorating situation in middle-income countries and stressed the importance of all creditors sharing a fair burden. All creditors, creditors sharing a fair burden. Good luck getting them to buy into that one. But it did not mention China, which has cited, which has been criticized in the West for delaying efforts to ease debt strains for some emerging economies. Ukrainian President Zelensky told the summit in a virtual address that now was the time to stop Russia's invasion and implement a 10-point peace plan he has proposed. <laughs> okay, well, let me just finish this. Kiev is demanding a full Russian withdrawal from occupied territories. He's also asking for restoring radiation safety at the Russian-held Zaporozhye nuclear power plant, price restrictions on Russian energy resources, and expanded grain export initiative. All right, so at least now they are starting to negotiate. You know, they, they're negotiating with these certain... Um, what's the term? These are the preconditions to start negotiations. But remember, Zelensky said they would never negotiate. Now they're negotiating. There's rumors of U.S. and Russia back, you know, backdoor dealings here. It seems like there's a lot of push to get this thing wrapped up to have some sort of deal on the table before Russia's mobilization can complete. Remember, they are having 300,000 troops coming. And it's winter with no power in Ukraine, with rolling blackouts over the pretty much the entire, uh, from Kiev to the east. Western Ukraine, I think, is tied into some other power plants in other countries like Poland and, and Hungary and stuff. But from Ukraine east, they're having rolling blackouts. 
winter's coming. But now the point is here. Now Zelensky is saying he wants to negotiate, though he has these preconditions. Of course, those preconditions aren't will not be met, but at least they're starting to negotiate. I think that's a positive step forward. Um, I think markets will also see this as a positive step forward. So anyway, uh, I'll let you guys read the rest of that article. That's it for today, guys. I'm going to open up the mic here on Telegram for anybody that wants to raise a uh, new topic or say something about what I said or anything. All right. Well, while I'm waiting for that, let's take a quick look at the charts again before I leave. The dollar's still sitting at 106. Bitcoin is trying to press above the $17,000 mark or stay above the $17,000 mark, right fluttering with that level. Um, the 10 year yield, which we didn't even talk about earlier. Oh man, it had another leg down here. So today, it looks like it got all the way down to 3.75, 3.75 on the 10 year. And remember that that is the bottom of the Fed funds range. If it if this 10 year continues to go down lower and crash through the federal funds range, the Fed must pivot. I mean, they, there's no, again, there. <laughs> I try to say okay, that there's no mechanical thing here. So there's no mechanical f- forcing the Fed to pivot. Like in their mandates that they have this line that says, if the 10 year goes below your Fed funds range, you have to pivot. No, there's nothing like that, of course. But their their choice becomes either raise rates and lose confidence and lose face in front of the world that you're raising rates and the the interest the market rates are collapsing or pause. So they're being forced by the situation to make their their thing. But um I'm watching this every day and the 10 year had this nice move down today to 3.75, which is pretty incredible. We'll see what happens. Um, oil sitting at 86 down from the recent high up at 93. And it is kind of uh, putting in a consolidation pattern a little bit higher up than I thought it would, but 86 is not 300. We'll see what happens. And lastly, let's take a look at stocks. Big green day on the day, pumping. A lot of people are watching for this to hit the the S&P 500 when it hits the 200-day moving average. I'll post that here in the Telegram group here. So that's just a few points higher, and we'll see if it bounces off the 200-day or if it goes right through it. If it goes right through it, I mean, guys, the party's back on for stocks. I think Bitcoin and the stock market will rally here if it breaks the 200-day moving average. So anyway, let's see anybody raising their hands with a comment. Nope. All right, well, that's where I'm going to leave it today. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you on the next one. Bye.